Right, what's this? Dear Gareth, had to run away on urgent business. Left your creature feature on cassette. Interesting. We'll be back next week as of normal. Aaron. Hmm. That leaves me no one to do the show with. Uh, hang on. Paris? Yeah? Do you want to host the show with me? Go on then. Cool. Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. Right, well, welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, the place where the weird and wonderful parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth, and they've all left me now. They've all gone. Drew's still away on holiday, and Aaron's had to disappear for the week. Well, I've managed to drag and persuade my better half into the cupboard to fill in for their hosting duties. So welcome along, Paris. What have you been up to this week? Hello. Um, I've just been working as usual. And uh, yeah, I've been doing a bit a few bits and bobs in the garden, haven't we? Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, you, you pretty much know what I've been doing and you pretty much uh, and I pretty much know what you've been doing. Well, when it comes to, to stuff that we've both been doing this week, we've been uh, getting ready to try and plant as many vegetables for next year by building a greenhouse, which uh, should should hopefully put us in good stead. You know you're a solid couple when you can put something together and not argue too much. Yeah, the whole thing didn't exactly go as, as well as planned, but it's getting there. And uh, by the end of the, uh, the, hopefully by the end of the week, probably more by the end of the month, we should have a solid building until it falls over in the first wind. But we'll see how we go. <laughs> anyway, we seem to be, like I say, we are lacking Aaron and Drew this week. They should both be back next week. Fingers crossed. Everyone cross your fingers. We're going to, well, continue on as normal. Aaron has sent us in his creature feature, so we'll be putting that in uh, and then be adding ourselves to the end as to uh, to what he is going on about. But before we do all of that, let's jump on into the news for this week. It's the news! Right, well, we're into this week's news. Uh, I'm going to start things off with looking at bin-opening cockatoos entering an arms race with humans in and around Sydney. It sounds like the plot to some bizarre piranha-esque sort of B-horror movie, cockatoos taking over and destroying people's lives. Believe it or not, this is very, very true. This comes from fizz.org. Uh, which is a fantastic site that I know we've used multiple times before. Uh, And in fact, within the same day of this article coming out, there was another cockatoo bin based article as well that goes on about uh, the same issue uh, happening uh, more than once. So what on earth's happening? Well, in Australia, uh, there are multiple species of parrot and probably one of the most recognisable is the sulphur-crested cockatoo. They're found throughout most of uh, Eastern Australia, inland Australia, and and Southern and West Australia, pretty much anywhere and everywhere. These birds are found in suburbia as well. We used to occasionally get them in the garden uh, when we lived in Australia, but um, yeah, you'd certainly know when they turn up. They've got a very, very loud call. And they're they're sort of white, apart from their very black beak, black feet, and the white, uh, sorry, the yellow crest that they have. Uh, which is where they get their name, sulphur-crested cockatoo. So Australia's crafty sulphur-crested cockatoos uh, have appeared to have entered an innovation arms race with humans, scientists are saying. 
as the two species spar uh, over rubbish in roadside bins, in, in wheelie bins. So the birds can grow nearly as long as a human arm, as it's uh, saying in the article, which is an interesting way to, to state how big they are, one human arm long. Uh, initially um, surprised researchers by devising ingenious techniques to prise open household bin lids in Sydney and the surrounding areas. Do we have a new contender for the title bin chicken? Well, yeah, actually. <laughs> so some of you may be aware, some of you may not be aware, but in Australia, the um, sacred ibis is known as the bin chicken quite fondly or unfondly. A lot of people don't like them, but I think I personally think they're lovely. So so come at me if you uh, if you hate the uh, the ibis. I'm one who quite quite likes them. They're an interesting looking bird. But yeah, they, these guys might be a contender, certainly a smarter contender than the uh, the ibis for bin chicken maybe so when it comes to the these birds uh, and humans uh, behavior may reveal a hitherto unexplored interspecies innovations arms race said a study published monday in current biology so where's this all taking place let's say it's happening in sydney but particularly nestled between the forest and surf swept beaches bordered by cliffs of the picturesque town of Stanswell Park near Sydney, is which seems to be the front line for this particular avian battle. If we don't close the bin right after throwing out the rubbish, they'll be in there, says Anna Kulik, 21, manager of the town's Loaf Cafe. I'm assuming that's the name of it, not that they've misspelt local. Um, the cockatoos everywhere, like just rubbish, all over the front area, she said. Her own family has tried scaring cockatoos away with owl statues uh, to no avail. They then tried placing bricks on the bin lids, but the cockatoos learned to remove these. Finally, they drilled a lock into the bin, which kind of would have been my first go-to in, in that sort of sense. If, if the bin was being opened continuously, I'd go for something a bit more heavy duty. A bit more secure, yeah. Although I get the feeling if you did that and left it out, the bin men might come along and they might get annoyed that they can't get into it as well. There's a brilliant quote that this brings to mind. Uh, from a forest ranger at Yosemite National Park. Now, I don't know how true this is as to whether they've said it, but it's still a brilliant quote, nevertheless, uh, and why it's hard to design the perfect uh, rubbish bin to keep bears from breaking into it. There is a considerable overlap between the ill intelligence of the smartest bear and the dumbest tourists. So at some point, if you make that bin so impossible to open that you know, you're never going to have that issue of the cockatoos getting in there, you're also never going to have anyone being able to change the bin ever again. So it's it's very much catch-22. Yeah, that's, um, you, you could say make it so that, you know, you can open it with an opposable thumb, but, but birds can open things. They don't need, a, I was going to say, they don't need thumbs. <laughs> they got their beak, which there is actually a video of them opening the bins very easily, using their beak, just prying in under the side, popping it up, and then just work, working their way along the bin lid, uh, along the top of the bin, sorry. And that throws open the bin lid, and then it's easy pickings from that point on. <laughs> it's an incredibly smart bird uh, in themselves and also a bird that's more than capable of doing things like this. Uh, one of the other quotes is uh, the revolving year. Uh, like if you go back like five, 10 years ago, they didn't know how to open bins. Now they're figuring stuff out, said the cafe's chef, 42-year-old Matt Hoddo. I mean, they're not evolving in that sense, but they're evolving culturally, I suppose, uh, in being able to work out how to do things like this and passing it on through the group or observing it and passing it on through the group. So in a way they are, I suppose. Today the bins, tomorrow the banks. So nearly 40-year-old resident Ski Jones said he'd uh, he had resorted to an elastic cord to hold down the lid of his household bin 
after the birds worked out how to remove a brick and then a larger rock. <laughs> so just imagining brick sales in Sydney's are uh, in Sydney is up at the moment. Yeah. Place to be. <laughs> got a feeling i'm going to be going for the actual lock he said there's only a matter of time scientists found uh, in an earlier study as well that the knowledge of this technique spread as other birds looked on creating sort of a local tradition between the cockatoos flocks and some of the flocks of these birds are quite large um they can number in the hundreds when in the outback but sort of local flocks are usually around 20 30 birds their new research shows that humans frustrated at having their rubbish spread across the street learned to adapt as well but they did but then so did the cockatoos so it's this arms race essentially when this all first started out the behavior was already amazing because actually the cockatoos learned how to open the bins said the study's lead author, Barbara Klump, a behavioral scientist at the Max Planck Institute in Germany. As humans responded, uh, I was really astonished by how many different methods people had invented, she said. You get the feeling that um, she's more impressed by the humans doing things than the cockatoos. I am a little bit if they've come up with multiple <laughs> things. I mean, my first thought would be to hang a chain off of it with a heavy weight on the end, because then you can lift the whole lid up, being, you know, a, a primate oh. with, with two arms. But then what of the birds would chew off the chain in some way, pry it off of their beaks if you haven't put that on properly? It would be interesting to see. Well, this is true. This is the most interesting part for me, she said. In a census of almost 3,283 bins, the latest study found that some cockatoos could defeat low-level precautions, such as rubber snakes placed on the bins, which they would just simply ignore after a while, <laughs> or bricks, which they could be, uh, which could be pushed off. Especially if they've got the holes, they'll just grab onto those and throw them off. Yeah. Um, so far, the cockatoos had not managed to overcome stronger methods, such as weights actually attached to the lids or an object stuck into the hinge to prevent them from fully opening. So you've gone instantly for one that would defeat the cockatoo by having the weight hanging off the lid. So it's, yeah, smart human. On the lid or in the hinge, they could easily just pull that off, out mm. and push it off or... But if it's something you've physically got to lift up to open the lid, they're not going to be able to do that. that that's just what came into my mind. But then yeah. we also live in a country that we don't generally have things breaking into our bins <laughs> as much. We don't have raccoons. We don't have bears. We don't have We've got squirrels. I, yeah, but they're more likely to fall in and get trapped. They do. <laughs> they do occasionally chew so their way in, which I'm surprised the cockatoos haven't done either because... They are more than capable of chewing in, but that's probably more effort yeah. to put in than they can be bothered with. Mm -hmm. So bricks seems to work for a while, uh, but the cockies get too clever. One resident told the researchers in an online survey, they attach with more than 1,000 participants in this local area. <laughs> so who is winning the arms race? Uh, I agree with the, the exact quote that comes directly after this sentence. Uh, I think ultimately it will be the humans that win, said Clump. Uh, but we need to see how it develops, she added, explaining that it's, it's easy to underestimate the work involved for humans in protecting their bins every week. For some people, already uh, relaxing their guard when cockatoo's activity has decreased in the area. The interspecies bin struggle is unlikely to lead to a new breed of even cleverer cockatoo, however. Uh, there is a certain capacity for problem solving, and we know that they're super curious and they like to explore, she said but I don't think this protecting of the bins will itself then make the cockatoo smarter. It'll make those particular ones a bit more ingenious, I thought, but uh, 
you never know. We could have super smart cockatoos ruling Sydney within the next 10 years. God help us all. <laughs> Some people would say better than the politicians. So <laughs> despite the annoyance, many residents in Stanwell Park say they have a soft spot for the birds. Uh, they call them rats of the sky because they just love food, said Catherine Erskine, 48, owner of the town's Ulawatu Blue Cafe. Uh, they're beautiful and they're really noisy, but I do love them. So it's good to see that people aren't out, you know, on a vendetta to try and hunt these birds down just because people are feeling a bit insecure that they're being outsmarted by a parrot. As usual with things that are then deemed vermin or pests because they've been outsmarting you or they're causing you some kind of discomfort or issue with your life. It's um, it's nice to see that people are looking past that and realising that if we weren't here, they wouldn't be opening bins because there wouldn't be bins to open. So they're yeah. only causing an issue because we're there. Yeah, definitely. And when it comes to wildlife in Australia as well, it's it's everywhere. It's impossible to get away from. We used to have probably not the smartest birds in the world. You'd cook something on the barbecue. If you were cooking it at home, you'd have magpies turn up. They're very different from British magpies. Uh, they're about the size of a crow. They would turn up and they'd smell the food and they'd walk almost straight onto the hot plate, burn their feet and fly off. So they weren't at the uh, particularly smart end of the uh, the equation. Probably one of the weirdest ones for being at the smart end of the equation, if you ever went to a public barbecue in sort of a, a national park and started cooking, especially in a place called Parawira, which is somewhere we used to go um, quite often, uh, myself and my family. If you started cooking on the barbecue there, the smell would obviously dissipate into the bush. And the first thing to appear would be emus. At least five, <laughs> five or six emus would turn up in almost a small mob and uh, they'd start hanging around. Now, if you are completely and utterly terrified of these, well, almost metre and a half tall birds, you're probably going to back off. And you'd quite often see tourists just leaving their meal for the emus then to decimate and just eat. But, I think I've only ever seen one aggressive emu. Oh, they weren't aggressive. Yeah, they're, they're just, just, I mean, they're generally like soft giant chickens. They're just, just in your face. Yeah, yeah. And, and having that around you while you're having a burger to me would be magical, not <laughs> something to be running screaming from. We, we used to sit there and just, you know, just sort of shoo them away. Toss them a snack. Well, yeah, um, they would. In the wild, they wouldn't naturally be eating sausages, but... Uh, Don't they go on sausage trees? Well, I mean... Fair enough. <laughs> Not in that part of Australia. So, but yeah, there's um cockatoo war happening in Sydney at the moment. So um, that is uh, <laughs> that's weirder news than you could possibly have. So, what have you got, Paris? What have you brought with you this week? I am bringing forward uh, an article that we've been given by one of our very wonderful avid listeners about fossilised regurgitate. Nice. Yes, um, as along the, the usual lines of my, my work, I'm used to bodily fluids and things, but um, fossilised, I'm, I'm not sure I can do too much about that. From, um, from Science Alert, uh, prehistoric puke reveals a stomach-churning banquet from millions of years ago. So yeah, it's 15th of September this year, it's been published by uh, Jennifer Nalawicki. Uh, hundreds of millions of years ago, a carnivorous critter gorged on a feast of prehistoric amphibians and puked up its meal afterwards. Tasty. Paleontologists have unearthed regurgitation and published their findings of the ancient upchuck. Uh, 2018, researchers discovered it, also known as a bromelite, during an excavation in the Morrison Formation in Utah. A hotbed for fossils dating to the late Jurassic period, 164 million to 145 million years ago. 
This section in particular, dubbed the Jurassic Salad Bar by local paleontologists, uh, normally you find plants and other organic material rather than animal bones. So when they found this compact little pile of uh, remains measuring no more than uh, a square centimetre, or for those not on the metric, uh, one third of a square inch, um, they knew they found something a little bit different. So obviously what was different was it's all concentrated animal bones in a relatively tiny area. Um, normally no animal remains at all. So when we found them and they weren't spread out, obviously they didn't know what they'd found. Um, they definitely didn't think prehistoric vomit. But yeah, they had a look and it wasn't just bones from a, a single creature or a single salamander. So looking closer, materials from uh, at least one frog and one salamander. So then what we thought we were starting to see was puked out by a predator. So yeah, it's femurs from a frog as well as a salamander and vertebrate from one or more unidentified species. Uh, nearly a dozen bone fragments clustered together are the matrix of fossilised soft tissues. Lovely. And unlike coprolites, which is fossilised poop, this My regurgitation <laughs> isn't completely digested, which obviously if it had been the whole way through, um, it would have been more digested than this. So that's what led them to was a regurgitolite. So although there's been a recorded number of them around the world, this is the first known instance of one in the Morrison Formation, calling the discovery one of a kind. And while sadly, there's no way of knowing exactly what species or animal lost its lunch or why it upchucked in the first place, further analysis could determine components of the partly digested animals, Possibly, maybe if it's a frog, um, it could have been some kind of toxin. Could be, yeah. It might just have caused them to, well, think twice, although they've already eaten them at this point. So, yeah, it's sort of a bit late for that as a defence. Don't go around licking frogs, people. <laughs> so, yeah, that's um, that was uh, uh, one of the interesting things we've been brought by one of our avid listeners. So thank you very much. That's uh, Louise O'Leary who's sent that in. She's sent quite a few different things over the uh, over the years. Very appreciative of your efforts. Thank you. It's funny that that's come from the Morrison Formation because there's uh, a really fun little scientific thought piece that went on to do with dinosaurs, vomit, and the Morrison Formation. So the Morrison Formation, for anyone who's not aware, is the essentially it is the proper Jurassic Park. It is uh, Allosaurus, Brachiosaurus, Stegosaurus, Camptosaurus, all those big, quite famous North American dinosaurs that um, lived during the Jurassic period. It was a, well, in fact, Ceratosaurus as well. There's some really, really amazing roster of names to be able to bring up for that. But this really fun little thought piece that uh, pops up every now and again on social media and different things is uh, what would happen if Brachiosaurus vomited and working out the forces involved. So this is uh, this is what it has. Uh, assuming 50 kilos of regurgitant has come out of the mouth of our lovely Brachiosaurus. That's a, that's a, a lot of regurgitant. Yep, uh, it's certainly going to be that, that's everywhere. A, that's a large child <laughs> in weight. It's a heavy night out on the town for that Brachiosaurus. <laughs> uh, it has an impact velocity from 14 meters height I love how someone had wasted the time to work this all out. This is not a waste of time in <laughs> any way, shape or form. So it's got an impact velocity from 14 metres height up and the ground is likely to be a hard packed sand where the impact site is. So we've got our height, we've got our impact velocity. Uh, so it's V equals, what's that? Actually? The square root of 2GH. 
uh, equaling 16.6 ms, uh, which is kinetic energy before impact. So working at, at 6.8, no, so, sorry. 6,860 joules of energy. And uh, how much of that energy is uh, able to kill something? Well, the average impact force that's reckoning is around 68,600 newtons, <laughs> which is a considerable amount of force. And if you think of some of the smaller dinosaurs that were running around the feet of some of the larger dinosaurs, if 50 kilos worth of vomit hits them uh, from 14 meters up, there's a good chance that that dinosaur is going to be splattered, to say the least, and very, very messy, to say the uh, the worst. I don't actually know what 68,600 newtons works out to. I'm not a physicist. No, um, but, you know, if anyone is aware of that, please let us know. I've obviously had my fair share of vomiting experiences, both at work in the animal industry and at home with our son. From 14 metres high? Uh, no, funnily enough, but um, even just a small dog, depending on what they've eaten... Um, where we've had to make them sick, obviously, to get rid of their stomach contents if they've eaten something they shouldn't have. I, I have seen it splatter and, and go pretty much across the ceiling at times. So that's from a, a small 20, 30 kilo <laughs> dog compared to however many kilos a large dinosaur is and its vomit thereof. So, yeah, I can imagine it would be quite uncomfortable. See, it's all the things like that that really make me like random fossils like that. There's a, another really good one of a turtle that was crushed in a sauropod's footprint. It was basically walking along and was stepped on. The sauropod didn't even see it. And it's this beautifully preserved fossil of a turtle that's basically squashed into a sauropod's footprint. Uh, a beautiful fossil and a real moment in time. Um, and I, I just hope one day we find a 50 kilo impact crater from some brachiosaur vomit and a small dinosaur squished at the bottom of that. But anyway, let's move on from our news articles and let's head into this week's creature feature, which Aaron has very kindly recorded and sent in to us. And we're going to, um, well, fill in the gaps, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. We'll do our best. Cool. Let's do that. It's the creature feature. Right. Well, we're into our creature feature for this week. Um, it is slightly different. I've, I've got the creature feature in front of me here. It's, uh, well, it's on a cassette. Hang on. Let's put his uh, creature feature in. Just pop that in there. Okay. And, uh, yeah, I didn't even know I still had a cassette player. Welcome, conservation connoisseurs, to this week's creature feature. It's March and in one of the small pieces of extremely fragmented wilderness we have across the UK, wedged up in a fork of a tree some 18 metres. I mean, they're generally found between 12 and 20 metres up. But here sits a thick, warm-looking mass of twigs, grass, trash, and a baby's dummy. In the mass of crap nestled safely under the warm body of a loving mother sits two eggs. Now, Dad won't incubate these eggs, but he will be the main breadwinner, bringing food back to the nest for Mum during incubation. The incubation itself started at the laying of the first egg and will continue for another 28 days, give or take. Incubation is about 31 to 32 days per egg, 38 in clutches of three. But finally, it is time for our chicks to make their grand entry into the world. Dad will now be bringing back food for both chicks as well as for mum. And after the first week, the chicks will begin to 
behave antagonistically, even aggressively towards each other, though they rarely kill their siblings. It has happened. After the second week, the chicks can be left for short periods of time, allowing mum to stretch her wings and help dad hunt for food. And as the weeks wear on, the nest starts to feel cramped, small and increasingly tighter. By day 45, the chicks are climbing all around the nest tree, up the branches and such, and they'll begin to fledge around this time at about 48 days old, uh, though this process may take up to 70 days. After fledging, our chicks, and now fledglings, uh, will still be watched over by their parents for up to 20 additional days. They then will say their goodbyes, and the youngsters will travel great distances before returning to the area as adults. And that is when you see them. Summer is transitioning into autumn now and gliding grace gracefully above you as you walk the rural paths of Britain, you notice a rather large pair of uh, birds of prey. The intense reddish brown orange color of the red kite sets it apart from the common buzzard, another large British bird of prey. It's also more slender than the buzzards, though it has a wingspan almost 50 centimeters longer with some individuals sporting a wingspan of up to 179 centimetres. And the final dead giveaway, of course, the difference between these two species, the tail. Where the buzzard's tail is short and fairly widely fanned, uh, the red kite displays a wonderful forked shape, the movement of which is easily spotted even at a distance. And as you watch these wondrous wanderers, one dives to the floor beyond a bush and out of your field of view. Um, now you guys might be thinking that they're catching a rabbit or, or a hare or something like that, but these guys tend to hunt smaller prey. They, they tend to predate on mice and voles and more commonly than not, they feast on worms. But in this case, our red kite is feeding on what red kites feed on best and that's carrion. Uh, yeah, if you've ever turned your nose up at the idea of a lion or a tyrannosaur being considered a scavenger because that's a dirty and cheap feeding tactic, then I'm afraid the red kite is here to further prove you wrong. These guys are arguably the most stunning bird of prey in the UK. There are a couple other contenders for that title, but they are indeed scavengers. So, you hop a gate quietly and reach for your binoculars to witness the incredible dexterity of their talons and beak, accessing all the nutritional goodness a carcass can offer. After taking its fill of a day day or two dead hair, um, the, uh, the bird then ascends back to the skies once more and follows more or less in the same direction as its sibling did. A week later, you enjoy seeing what appears to be one of the kites you'd previously watched. The smaller of the two siblings um, seems to be putting on some weight now, but the more aggressive of the clutch is nowhere to be seen. Continuing your walk, you notice a brownish lump on the track ahead. You reach it to find that, most tragically, that carry-on, that two-day-old, give or take, dead hare, uh, had actually passed away on a state-owned land and the carcass had been laced by a gamekeeper. The poison had probably taken around four painful days to reach its inevitable conclusion and so ends the story for this young red kite. 
persecuted for a crime it didn't commit, the scapegoat, dead. This unfortunately is the reality for so many red kites, even if they aren't the target of gamekeepers, which they often are, they could be killed by poisons intended for other predators too, such as foxes. Poison is, after all, indiscriminate. Poisons are particularly a problem for the youngsters, and it's not just purpose-made poisons that are used. Agricultural chemicals are deliberately used as well to poison these species, among other animals. Anyway, poison remains to this day the number one threat to red kite survival. Mortality rates within their first year of life are set to roughly around 50% in Wales and Scotland, with around 80% in England. Um, and those who do make it to adulthood may live to be about 10 years old, occasionally older still. To help them reach these grand older ages, conservation is, of course, vital. The Kite Committee, established in 1903, was done so by individuals concerned by the decline in numbers of red kites in the UK. RSPB joined the committee later in 1905. Uh, since then, nest protection initiatives uh, throughout the 50s and 60s largely stopped egg thieves in their tracks. Concerned by the struggles the species faced in Wales, it was then accepted that they wouldn't be able to naturally spread out of the country. So steps were considered to reintroduce the species in 1986. Uh, the IUCN would only agree if the following criteria are met. Firstly, the existence of good historical evidence for form and natural occurrence. Um, also, a clear understanding of why the species disappeared, only if the disappearance was due to human action and the species was unlikely to recolonize naturally would uh, reintroduction be considered. Um, the factors causing extinction uh, had to have been rectified. Suitable habitat m had to still be present to support a viable population. Um, the birds intended for release had to be genetically as close as possible to the former indigenous population. And the removal of birds for the project uh, was not allowed to jeopardize the survival of the population from which the birds were taken. Now, the red kite is actually one of the few bird species in Britain that fulfills all of those criteria. And during a period of 1989 to 1994, a total of 93 birds of Swedish, Spanish and Welsh origin were reintroduced to England and Scotland. The success of this project has seen further red kites reintroduced to other locations around Britain. And as a result of these efforts and with the, uh, the growth in, in respect and admiration from the general public, the species is beginning to see a population recovery that will hopefully aid in our remaining chicks' survival. So we fast forward a couple of years and you recognise a familiar shape gliding through the air, somewhat darker in its now adult plumage, but it's unmistakable next to the photo you kept on your phone, which is still the same phone all these years later because these mobile phone companies like to keep you locked into ridiculously long-assed contracts these days. Anyway, the chick is now two years old and has returned to its parental nesting grounds to breed for itself for the first time. And so... The cosmic cycle of nature continues. So that was Aaron's creature feature. It is the red kite, uh, which he um, well was quite happy with, although uh, he wanted to add more. But without being in the same room as any one of us, um, it sort of lost that sort of the banter side of things. But basically, it's it's a bird that is dear to pretty much everyone here at the um, at the cupboard, for the simple reason that we've all gone and seen one at some point or another. 
Um, I've dragged you to go and see some as well, haven't I? Yep, we went to uh, Gigrin Farm in Wales. Yep, which is the the um, the original release site that uh, Aaron was talking about for some of those original birds, where they started feeding scraps of of leftover meat, Aaron. and and to their surprise, they actually ended up with uh, some of these original birds coming down and feeding to the point where many 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 years later now we've got to the what almost 30 years almost 40 years later we've got to the point where you go there and there are hundreds of birds that turn up and they they drive along with a tractor uh, and a trailer full of scraps of meat that they just fling out into this area and you uh, you sit in a hide with with a bunch of other people and their dogs <laughs> dogs for some <laughs> absurd reason because somebody decided to bring a dog to a, uh, an area to see birds uh, when we went um, and you watch these birds swooping down, almost never touching the ground, just grabbing their food, flying back up into the um, uh, into the trees and eating it. Maybe one or two buzzards we spotted there. Um, and there was that one leucistic one as well, one that had less coloration to it than all of the others, um, which had become sort of a, a slight local celebrity of a, of a bird because it was obviously the easiest one to spot. I've, I've had a fascination with these birds for a while now since, um, you know, learning about how their conservation has gone. And it was, in fact, Drew, who will probably go over this at some point, uh, that actually showed me my first red kite when we went to Milton Keynes for the day on the way to London. There is a very large number of red kites that you'll see in Milton Keynes to the point where it almost rivals Gigrin Farm. Um, just swooping around people's gardens, which I was utterly amazed at to see these quite large birds of prey swooping really low in and around suburbia, uh, around the motorway as well. It's it's truly stunning to see that these birds have made such a comeback to almost the same levels that they had pre-extinction uh, in, in England and Scotland uh, and almost, thankfully not, in Wales. I mean, if you'd have gone back in time in a time machine, obviously, to um, <laughs> medieval England, you would have seen these birds swooping down over rubbish tips. We think today when we think of, bird, well, Paris, what, what birds do you think of when you think of uh, rubbish tips today in the UK? Um, herring gulls, mainly. Yeah. Um, crows. Yep. Magpies. Yep. Um, starlings, quite often. Less so, but yeah, yeah. So these are the birds that we associate with rubbish tips uh, today. But if you went back to medieval England, you would have seen hundreds of black, uh, red kites uh, swooping down and grabbing bits and pieces off rubbish tips then. Uh, they were seen as, like Aaron said, a bit of a, um, a virtue to have around because they were the cleanup crew. They'd get rid of all the mess um, and, and take it away. But... Times change and people's attitudes also change as well. I mean, as we quite often see today, people are pretty horrible to herring gulls. They're pretty horrible to pigeons as well because they're seen as vermin. But as we were saying before, vermin is just a marker that people put on things because they don't like them. They're usually birds or, uh, or other animals that are really successful at what they do. And people just seem to have a weird jealousy almost over that, I'd say. It's, um, it's also down to the behaviours they exhibit. So they don't necessarily dislike the animals, they dislike the behaviour they exhibit. Yeah, and it's things that could probably be done um, by humans to, to change it. In fact, even Shakespeare talks about them and how horrible they were and all these sort of horrible things about these birds. But they were truly 
fascinating birds to have probably seen in and around central London, you know, in this big sort of sprawling medieval uh, metropolis. They're not there currently today, but they're not far off from being back in the capital. Um, when it comes to these birds, they were then hunted into a, a almost extinction completely across the UK. And when the birds themselves were reintroduced, as uh, Aaron was mentioning, and the program started to take off, as there was actually some kickback as well. People started to use the word uh, shite hawk um, every now and again for these birds, which is actually completely and utterly inaccurate. As with most things, people not understanding that there are more than one bird that gets names like this. That actual particular term dates back to the time of the Raj when British soldiers were in India um, and they would have black kites, a very closely related species, but look relatively different to each other in large numbers and doing the same thing, swooping down, taking food, flying off, but stealing it from uh, soldiers' messes and places like that so that you couldn't put your food down for more than two seconds without one of these birds nicking your, your lunch which then gave them the, t the term. Unfortunately, then people started, have started using that for, for the, uh, the red kite. Usually people who have a vested interest in not liking birds of prey on their land. And as Aaron mentioned, we still to this day get a lot of poisonings going on. And it's really sad. These are not birds that are out to take people's livestock. They won't do anything like that. Was there any studies done to show that there were no more predations going on of livestock or perhaps small dogs from cats <laughs> being taken? Were there stories that suddenly sprang up with the birds being reintroduced or has it actually more likely been nothing's been taken because they don't do that? You know what, I'd love to say, in fact, if, I bet if you looked back through um, old newspaper things from the, the 80s and the 90s, you'd probably come across some scare stories because they're always scare stories like that. Yeah, it's probably just some weirdo taking the cats, not the actual birds. Yeah. One of the other connections to do with this bird is the fact that it is essentially now the National Bird of Wales. It's been voted that in 2007. It's Irbarked Koch, which is the red kite, literally. It's another animal that gets the, the red name for it, even though it's not technically red. Just like the red squirrel, both of them are actually orange. And red foxes, also orange as well. Red deer, also orange as well. Redheads are usually orange, ginger. Do you know why that is? Because no. the word orange didn't exist until people started breeding the fruit. Interesting. So the actual word came after the colour. Well, the colour came after the... One of them came first. I can't picture that in my mind. But most animals that are referred to as red are actually sort of an orangey-brown colour. One to think about there. But yeah, it is the National Bird of Wales. And one of the great things to leave this on is the fact that those birds that were brought into Wales to breed with the very small Welsh, pop Welsh population, like Aaron said, came from Sweden and came from Spain. The Spanish population of these birds now has actually declined massively. It's really quite sad, but a really nice sort of almost poetic way of being able to bring things full circle is that birds from Wales are now being reintroduced back into the Iberian Peninsula to bolster the Spanish population. So they're taking 30 or so birds every couple of years to bolster that population and do what they did in Wales all those years ago on a slightly bigger scale, knowing that it works. 
They've got feeding stations set up in a network so that these birds will have something to eat until they get on their feet. Uh, and we're basically seeing those Welsh birds going into to Spain to bolster back their population. So somewhere in the genes of those birds are their distant ancestors, which they'll meet when they get back out there, which is really nice to think of. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's real, real good conservation that has gone from the ground up, saved a species to the point where they are now increasingly common. We saw one flying over your parents' house one day mm, in, in, uh, in North Devon. They're now far more far more common than you could have ever dreamed a species like that would become. Uh, and they're now being reintroduced into different countries from that population. So it's a really fantastic thing to see. So we'll go, we'll go on from our, our red kite. We'll let that soar off into the distance and we'll go into our emails for this week. Bing, you've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Right. Well, we're into this week's emails. Slightly different this week as we are, well, devoid of our regular hosts. <laughs> so what I've done or what I've done earlier in the week is ask them both if they could uh, send me some questions that they feel that they want to ask me, you know, that, that they feel that I've not answered for them yet. Drew got back to me uh, from the other side of the planet Aaron didn't. <laughs> so, um, Aaron, you never, you never asked me the question. Or, conversely, if it turns out, in fact, that I've actually not been able to find the question, you've sent it to me earlier in the week, I apologise, and I'm an idiot. Either way, we have Drew's questions, <laughs> and we've actually got one from Jess as well, uh, who's sent, um, sent one in. So, uh, Paris, what have we got? Read, read Jess's one first, I think. Okay, so Jess has asked, if you could communicate with just one species, what would it be? Right. I'm assuming she doesn't mean other people, because we can <laughs> roughly communicate, hence why we're all here on the podcast. Well, I don't think I can communicate with people. <laughs> well, we were both. We can certainly both answer this one. I, ooh. Um, you know what? Just purely from like an evil point of view... <laughs> I wish I could communicate with ants or bees or wasps, something along those lines, so I could use them to my Some advantage. Kind of like a hive creature. Basically be Ant-Man, yeah. Right. Without the shrinking capabilities. Although okay. I'd currently like to be able to communicate with our dog so I could ask her to just do what I ask her. Stop but peeing on the carpet. Yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> what would What would you like to communicate with? I'm going to show my cucumbers now. Um, it would probably have to be rats. Oh, um, I like it. Not only because I could tell them that, you know, rat traps, rat traps and, and bait is bad. Um, I get them to avoid all kinds of poisonings and horrible, nasty things going on. Um, also, they understand us. Um, they may not be able to communicate or talk back, but, you know, my rats would know certain words meant certain things. And just, just generally maybe from an evil point of view men can kind of rule the world a bit so you become the rat catcher from probably. dc comics um no no the rat catcher could control rats um i wouldn't necessarily want to control them just communicate with them <laughs> control yeah with great power comes great responsibility i don't want that responsibility fair enough <laughs> Okay, well there you go, Jess. There's there's our question answered there. Um, what's our next one? Uh, I think it's from Drew. So yeah, Drew's question: What nationality do you actually have? <laughs> or alternatively, why haven't you dug up a baryonyx or bred wetters yet? Wow, 
They really, that's really cutting me there, Drew. That's, I mean, the other two are, uh, I'll, I'll answer all three. But what nationality do you not, have, Drew? I'm going to answer the wetter one first. Um, that one really hurts. We, we did try. I, that's not just aimed at you because I was involved in that as well. I, um, I, yeah, I tried breeding wetters. They did everything right. They called almost every night to each other. Mm-hmm. They much to your disgrace because you would hear them of a night they used to be in two tanks right beside our bed and they reminded me of the scary creature noises from stranger things and it (laughs) kept me awake but they um yeah they well they just didn't lay eggs um the soil was deep enough it was wet enough they had drew knows how to what extent i made their diets as close to a wild diet as possible (laughs) i got as many different new zealand plants and spent ages trying to replicate a wild diet for a wetter and everything as much as possible um but yeah no that that one hurts i'm I'm gonna have to take that one up with with you when you get back um but as for as for what nationality i am i was born in scotland i then moved to australia where i spent uh a, a good part of my life growing up and then moved back to the UK. Sadly to say, in in some ways, I've spent more time living in England than I have anywhere else now um, on the planet. Mm-hmm. Sad. Sadly. I say also sad. where he met his wife, me, and, <laughs> okay. and his son. Okay, yes, yeah, yeah. Okay, you are mm-hmm. you are both English. Mm-hmm. So... Actually, it, my, my family is Scottish in origin as well, so... But I uh, I prefer to think of myself as a Celtic Australian in that sense. <laughs> so there you go. Who who lives in England? But do you know what? Out of all the parts of England uh, that you could live in, the the West Country is by far the least sort of overly English part. I don't know. I don't know where to go with that. I'm probably annoying an awful lot of people. Yes, you're also tracing all over <laughs> things like uh, cream teas, which comes first, jam and cream and all that kind oh, no, of no, thing. No, 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 no. That's for Aaron and Drew. That's to... quintessentially British down here. That's just bizarre down here. <laughs> but as for what was the other question, why haven't I dug up a baryonyx yet? Mm-hmm. Well, they know for a start because the episode um, that we did about baryonyx and things like Rhyperovenator uh, as well, are from either the Isle of Wight or from the uh, Smokejack Clay Pit in Sussex. And as we live in the West Country, that's quite a distance to uh, to go. Mm-hmm. I have been to the Isle of Wight. I have gone fossil hunting there, but I only had a week there a couple of years ago and didn't really know where I was looking for things. So that's why I haven't found a baryonyx. You know, just really dig the knife in there. That's all I can say is... I'm feeling cut by these questions. It's yeah. yeah. He's also tried dragging me along. So it's not a case of we haven't been, we haven't been trying for COVID. Um, and obviously now we have a little one to consider, but uh, we will be going again. I want to go to the Isle of Wight again. We will yeah. do our best to find a baryonyx. That would be very nice. Be nice and famous then. <laughs> but yes, um, those are our questions from uh, <laughs> from from Drew and from Jess this week. Um, they've uh, well, they've they've done rather well with with questioning. Um, some lactulose in their pizza tomorrow. <laughs> but if you too, dear listener, want to uh, well, just take a real jab at my inability to breed one of my favourite insects on the planet, 
feel free to send us an email. Um, our email address is thenathistorycovered at gmail.com. Um, you can also get in contact with us on Twitter and on Facebook. Uh, we're also on Instagram as well and on TikTok. So we find all of our different things that we post up there uh, and all the, the different bits and pieces that we have going on. Um, we are also on T-Mill as well. If you want to check out some of our fantastic T-shirts and merchandise that is up there uh, as well. There is a Weta T-shirt I'd like to point out. So I managed to breed Weta T-shirts. I don't know. <laughs> we'll, we'll see where that goes. Uh, but remember, if you like what you heard, you can leave us a, a review or like, subscribe, all those different things. Smash a bell, ring an icon. Like I say, throw a virtual sheep. Why don't we have those anymore? But you can do all of that on whatever podcasting service you are listening to us on. Uh, and that just leaves me to say a big thank you to my co-host, host, singular, uh, this week, uh, Paris. Thank you for uh, for coming along. Thank you very much for having me. Hope to be back soon. It's been a long trip, obviously, to get here. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I had to come down the stairs. Good. Well, yeah, we, we hope to have you back on at some point. We know that you're behind the, uh, behind the microphone a lot of the time, but you uh, occasionally come out in front of it. So uh, it's been very good to have you on this week. And next week, we should have normal service <laughs> as usual. We should have Drew and Aaron back. Here's hoping. <laughs> Otherwise, you're happy to come back? Absolutely. Anytime you want me. Lovely. Well, and a big thank you to you at home for listening. And we'll see you next time here in the Natural History Cupboard. Bye. Bye. You know, she's something of a co-host herself.